The Reimagining Development podcast was recorded on the lands of the Gadigal people, or part of coastal Sydney, and the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people of Canberra, and a number of others across this country. We give our thanks and pay our respects to all Indigenous people. Sovereignty was never ceded. Hello and welcome to Reimagining Development, conversations on the new development policy. It's from Goodwill Hunters in a special series in collaboration with the Australian Council for International Development, or ACFID. As the name spells out, this breakout series is all about the development policy. We want to inject new ideas, fresh voices and innovative thinking into the design of the new policy. I'm Rachel Mason-Nunn, founder of Goodwill Hunters and a director with Equity Economics. Most of us in the development world have spent the past couple of months deep in thought and conversation about how the new development policy should look. And the aim of this podcast is to bring those conversations to you. We're casting a wide lens on the aid, development and humanitarian sector. This series brings together established thought leaders, emerging thought leaders, exciting new voices and perspectives from across the sector and beyond. A quick note on terminology. This is a conversation and sometimes we'll use the words policy and process interchangeably. Sometimes we'll get the accepted terminology wrong. Please bear with us. It's all in the spirit of a free-flowing exchange of ideas. The Pacific is what's in the headlines nowadays, but we can't forget the other behemoth in our neighbourhood, Southeast Asia. DFAT has recently launched an office for Southeast Asia and we're told are looking at ways to ensure that the region stays buoyant. Indonesia in particular is significant right now. It's chairing ASEAN this year, only the fifth time it's to do so. This episode, I'm on the microphone alone without Jess, who wasn't able to make it, but I'm joined by Sandra Hamid, who is the former head of the Asia Foundation and based in Jakarta. Welcome, Sandra. How are you, Rachel? Really well, thank you, Sandra. Thank you for joining me. Now, uh, first off, I want to mention that you're on the government EAG, the advisory group for the new development policy, and I'm not going to be asking you about that, although I would Mm -hmm. love to. (laughs) I'm very curious, Uh, but today I'll mostly be uh, tapping into your wealth of knowledge about Indonesia, which of course is such a close neighbour to Australia, but so many Australians go straight to Bali and don't stop in Jakarta. So tell me, how are things in Jakarta today? Is it Sunny, rainy, busy, what's happening? It is um, both. It is sunny and rainy sometimes, you know, in 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 the in the difference is just a couple of minutes. So, you know, you said you were not gonna go for a run because it's rainy, and then the sun came up and then you put on your shoes and then the rain came back again. So it just has been like um, you know, quite a challenge to to plan your days and you know, with the traffic in Jakarta around rainy times. So, you know, it's it's a little bit crazy, but I think what it really shows is that, you know, this climate change is serious. It, it's real. It does. It does. affects your, your, your daily routine. Yeah. It sounds like some parts of Northern Australia at the moment too, um, we, are, we are in solidarity experiencing a wet season um, in parts of Australia right now. But uh, beyond the weather, um, how is Indonesia you know, socially, politically, economically at the moment, if you were to give a, a very high level snapshot? Of course, you know, people ask me and, you know, other um, 
Indonesian commentators, if you like, about this all the time, given the 2024 elections, right? We are going to head to a big election um, year next year, and it just feels like it's already starting, uh, you know, since some time ago with the jockeying of the presidential candidates and, you know, coalition of parties and all that. And so, Uh, that is really the topic of the day um, these days in Jakarta, you know, among among the political circle. And also because of the uh, social media, of course, everyone has a say, which is a good thing. You know, that's what democracy should be all about. But I just wish that people don't necessarily just focus on the high level politics, but more into the everyday politics Um you know, that really affects the everyday life of Indonesians. So, mm -hmm. but that's less sexy, isn't it? <laughs> it is interesting, isn't it? How democracy looks these days with social media, where, as you say, everyone has a voice. And, uh, well, we hope everyone has a voice, actually. It's no, it's probably an oversimplification, right, to say everyone has a voice. But we certainly hear from a lot of people, and particularly young people on social media, What are you hearing on the topic of the impacts of COVID and, and poverty and inequality? Well, here's the thing, right? I mean, you know, I'm not I'm not on social media. I deliberately am not on Twitter, so I cannot really comment, you know, on that level. But you know, the, the sentiment against inequality, the sentiment against the super rich who have um, access to wealth beyond what would be logical is is high, right? So there's a sentiment against that. Um, as I said, though, then, you know, okay, some people would then juxtapose it by the reality of the poor and, and so on and so forth. But so there is the realization of that. And the youth is, you know, obviously on the social media, they're on the forefront of that, right? But I'm not saying that there is none because there is a growing number of um, aware youth, uh, people who are actually looking into, as I said, the everyday life of the Indonesian people, which I think is the more important part, right, of your community, your neighbors. And there's a lot of movement going on actually uh, among the youth for the marginalized. And, and in particular, these marginalized people are the ones who are most affected by COVID, right? And so there has been some work going on led by the youth on these issues. However, they are also works on that higher level politics. Um, so in other words, yes, they are involved. They are involved in um, making sure their neighbors, their communities are actually going well in terms of accessing to services and stuff like that but they're also they also have a voice on the higher level politics yeah i think this is fascinating and youth is a topic we've talked about a lot throughout this series of goodwill hunters mm. and particularly the role of young people in in contributing to a vibrant civil society And I think it's an area where Australia and Indonesia share a lot of common ground is in the vibrancy and sort of buoyancy of our civil society. Would you agree? Yes, yes, absolutely. I'm a, a true believer of the importance of civil society as the bastion um, of democracy. And I think, you know, um, yes, um, there are also 
voices within civil society then that might not be what we think should be agreeable to democracy at large or the values of democracy but they are part of civil society too and they should also have a say uh, on how they dream Indonesia should be uh, and I think what's most important is that these voices these competing voices are actually heard and facilitated to actually be having a conversation with each other in a civil way, right? All contributing to our democracy. What has happened, however, in the past is that in the polarizing society, even among civil societies, um, you see different views that are not necessarily productive to the strengthening of our democracy. Mm, Yes. I think this vibrant civil society and, and democracy is is really interesting. And I'm personally very curious about how it will be treated in our new development policy, specifically what in the policy we say is Australia's comparative advantage in supporting civil society in our region. Do you have views on that? I mean, taking your EAG hat off, do you do you have views about how Australia can best support civil society in the region? Yeah, I mean, this is not necessarily talking about uh, the EAG or conversations within EAG, but, you know, I think, you know, I have been, as I said, a very strong advocate for supporting civil society in all of the different uh, um, parts or or segments of development. You see, I think the most important uh, aspect of Indonesian civil society is that they can really be a facilitator of conversations. And I think this is very important to be supported. And um, I think what is also important is that we look at civil society often as just a delivery partner, right? So we provide them with grants to deliver deliver a certain program, right? To deliver a certain uh, outcome. But I think often forgotten is that civil society also can contribute to the design of the program, right? To the the conversation of where, you know, uh, investment should be heading. So even before um, the program is actually conceived, uh, early conversations with them would only make the program design that much stronger. And I'm not talking just, you know, consulting with one or two Uh, leader of civil societies, but actually ask them to be a facilitator, ask them because they have enormous convening um, ability, right? And so I think, you know, this is something that I I would um, advocate for. I would argue that it is actually very important. Mm, So consult early and consult often with civil society. And use them as convening. Um, so not just consulting one way, but they can also be the convening agent uh, with other civil society groups that have differing views. And so this is another thing that I'd like to emphasize in, in this conversation about design is that you know it's very important that we also understand that Indonesian civil society it does not speak in one voice, right? And that's very important. And that polarity of voices is very important to be recognized. And, and um, you know, this is something that I think, you know, need to be also put, put forward in our thinking and working with civil society. 
It's a hard one because I feel development language often refers to groups as very homogenous. We hear a lot of, this is what we're hearing from the Pacific, or this is what Fiji wants. And it's sometimes hard to use any other language to reflect the complexity and polarity that you're talking about. How practically do you think we do that properly embrace the multidimensional and very complex nature of civil society in Indonesia? Well, you know, I think, first of all, um, I want to go back to the earlier part of what you said, right? Okay, the Pacific, you know, Southeast Asia or or even Indonesia, right? Um, I think we also need to, to recognize that even within government, so it's, we, we, sometimes we say we need to consult the government of Indonesia. Of course we do, right? But we also need to recognize as civil society is also uh, pluralistic in their views, there are also people within governments who have different views, different imaginations, different um, pathways that they think is best uh, way to actually push and push Indonesia forward. And I think this is what's really important as well, is that you recognize these different voices. Of course, Indonesian government has this overarching view, right, of where it wants to go. But the ways in which we actually going to get there, um, people within the government may have different uh, views, as I said, right? And they're all very important to be recognized with, uh, to be reckoned with and to be recognized so then the second part of your question about how in practicality we actually do that, I know this sounds very simple, by conversation, by engaging them, and by recognizing different actors, right? It's very important. And not just talking to those who only reaffirm your views. It's very important that, um, you know, um, the uh, the missions, not just Australia. I say this to every you know missions, different countries that I I, I I speak to, that you can only do this if you have strong locally engaged staff. You cannot rely these public conversations only with diplomats who come and go. Um, and that's why you know if you want to have a deep conversation with various aspects of civil society, you will have to empower and provide access to your locally engaged staff so that they can go out, so that they can build relationship, so that it's part of their mandate to actually do that. That's Mm. very important. It's such a brilliant point. And you've touched on Australian missions overseas there. And I think a big challenge is the length of postings and that sometimes not just in government, but but NGOs and other organizations, postings might be two or three years, you develop some local knowledge and then you leave. And it's, as you say, we need to be driven by deeply embedded local people who have a lifetime of experience that motivates the work that they're doing, which I wonder in practice, how do we achieve that? How do we attract those really um, fantastic experienced local people that are already embedded in local networks and communities? If you provide your locally engaged staff um, who work in different missions, and again, I'm not just singling out Australia, 
Um, but if you make the position attractive uh, for a senior Indonesian civil society uh, person or, or, you know, mid-level, you know, who have wealth of experience, they will want to do it, right? But if you turn it into a very bureaucratic position or uh, if you turn it into something that is very um, superficial, if you like, right? There's a lot of, you know, form and checking and, and, and all that. Um, that would be hard. But, you know, I know personally people within the missions, um, the locally engaged staff in the missions, they are fantastic, you know? Uh, and 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 in in the different embassies at this point in time right now, right? Um, and so I think what I would encourage is that that they are given more space to build relationship, that are given more space to actually um, go beyond just the programs that they're actually doing, right? Because um, this silo conversations only with partners with whom they have program can be limiting, right? And so I think that's part of the thinking that mm -hmm. could actually serve uh, both the missions well, as well as the people, uh, you know, who actually work within the mission. It will just be that much more fulfilling and useful yeah. and effective and meaningful um, because we all have the same agenda going forward, right? Yeah. So how do we build autonomy and ownership into these roles, I think is the question. And it reminds me of the questions we're asking about locally led in general in the development mm -hmm. sphere. And it, like lots of terms in development, we're now saying locally led a thousand times a day, but questioning what do we actually mean? And there are many different interpretations of it and it and one of those is does locally led mean working for and only for a local organization or can you build local leadership into international organizations or governments and others what's your view on locally led i think a couple of things i mean i happen to um work with the asia foundation which is an american organization I just finished my tenure, tenure with them after many, many years. And we were, you know, we're all Indonesians in this international organization, right? We have the backup uh, of a system uh, that is internationally, internet with international standard and so on and so forth. So that's, as you said, that's one aspect of, you know, uh, of, you know, lead, led by local Indonesians, right? And, you know, we see ourselves as very synchronized with what, you know, the imagination of a better Indonesia, so to speak, right? Um, and we design our program with, with not necessarily, we are very locally, we, they, I guess I should say at this point, <laughs> they're very um, locally driven, uh, locally, how do I say, addressing local issues. Is that, that's what I wanted to, to say. Now, you know, there are different uh, kinds of locally led uh, initiative, right? And I think this is the most important one, and that is really local organizations, Indonesian organizations. And it is very important that they are being supported. Um, and as I said, you know, in terms of um, 
operations and administrations, that would be where the rubber hit the road when you want to work with them. How do you have different kind of measurement of risk when you work with Indonesian organizations, in particular, the smaller ones, in particular, the one outside Jakarta? You know, that would be a challenge. And how you actually build that thinking of more risk um, in terms of administration um, risk, fraud issues, uh, um, not necessarily fraud, you know, uh, intentional fraud, but like just by system because they didn't have a better uh, uh, system on that. So all of those things are very important to be taken into account. Should it be done? Absolutely. It has to be done. It has, there's got to be an investment on that. But there are a couple of changes of delivery mechanism, if you like, that or engagement mechanism that has to be really well thought out. And I'm not saying that this is something new. This is something that has gone in and gone out and came back in again in the conversation. And this is the problem also with development programs that are short, um, you know, so they try. And then, oh, it didn't work out. There's like cases of fraud, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, then, oh, the Indonesian organization not good enough and all that. And then went back to the old model of, you know, just using them as a, um, you know, as, as down, 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 down in the, main, in the, in the downstream, right? Mm. Then somebody else would come, why don't we work directly with Indonesian organizations? And then the conversation started again. <laughs> It's funny how many conversations we have where people who have worked in the sector for 40 plus years um, here in Australia are like, oh, we talked about this 10 years ago. We talked about this 20 years ago. And you do realize that it's quite cyclical. But I think that as you're speaking there, what I'm thinking about is that local leadership always exists. It's not something we need to create as an external development partner. Um, it exists always. Absolutely. And it's a question of how are we going to be useful to it and mm-hmm. partner with it and network with it as opposed to how do we foster local leadership? That is, you, you are so right on the money. It is, how do you recognize them? How do you get strong relationship with them? How do you enable them to do to do what they do best? Right. And so that is really something that needs to be um, to be the framework. I mean, that's definitely should be the framework. It's not, you know, foster leadership as if, you know, it's as if it doesn't exist. You're, you're, you're absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah. How do we be useful and helpful and play to our strengths whilst supporting others to play to theirs? It's a very different language to how do we develop local leaders as though they didn't help them to grow? Yeah. <laughs> help them to grow. That's the worst. <laughs> and um, I think as I touched on in the intro, Australia has now established an office of Southeast Asia. Um, what are your views on, at a very high level again, what that office should be focusing on? What might they be turning their attention to over the next 12 months? I think... It is very important that you see Southeast Asia as a region 
right? But at the same time that you recognize the differences within each country, right? And so it's very important that, for example, going back to the development policy, that what speaks in the country um, strategies, it's very important. And in my mind, it will be more relevant right to the uh, to the to the relationship of uh, australia and the different countries in 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 southeast asia um, i think it's very important that we recognize um, the different how do we say civil society within these different uh, countries in southeast asia um, the different spaces that they actually have I think one of the things that could be very useful is facilitating the discussions among civil societies in this region, um, something that has been not quite a focus in the past, uh, I say, several years right now. And this um, facilitating discussion among civil society in these different uh, countries may help bridge the differences of policies and strategy and perspective in looking at several issues that are pertinent in the region. Yeah, yeah. It's it's interesting, that language, because I've often heard in recent times in development language referring to Australia as a facilitator and an enabler and how can we be a connector and a convener or a secretariat, like these kind of enabling words as opposed to, to doing words. There's an interesting distinction there that I'm not articulating well, but I think you've explained it very well, Sandra. Yeah, thank you. Um, I, I truly believe that. And conversation needs to be supported, I guess, right? I mean, a safe space among civil societies to talk about difficult issues. And let's not forget, right? I mean, like, we're all talking about this um, conversations and all that within what right now has become a cliche, but still very important to be thinking about shrinking space for civil society, right? Mm-hmm. You know, everywhere we talk about the regression of democratic values uh, in the different countries where we are, you know, not just Southeast Asia, but, you know, the world over. Um, so the most important thing in this context, in this era, I think is we need to be able to support conversation in often polarizing communities. And that's one sure thing that we need to do. Mm. Yeah, it's a really good point. Now, before we go, um, did you have any thoughts on the new policy that you wanted to share? Any reflections or comments? Um, well, I don't wanna, I don't want to bridge the confidentiality, but I'd say that it is really going uh, towards a very good direction. Um, and we're having conversations, um, meaningful conversations. And so that's that's really good. Uh, and uh, it's going to be out very soon. So I think, you know, that it won't be too long for you to wait. Wonderful. Well, we're all waiting with bated breath. Thank you so much, Sandra, for your time. Thank you, Rachel. I'm Rachel Mason-Nunn on the Reimagining Development Policy podcast. Tune in again for more hearty conversations on where development can and should go. Thanks again and bye for now.